This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special return guest to the podcast today. His name is Doug Wilson. So he is a conservative, reformed, evangelical theologian and pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. He's also written many many books. And uh, the last time he was on the show, we were talking about his newest book at the time, which was Mere Christendom. But he's also written books called Reforming Marriage, Rules for Reformers, When the Man Comes Around, and many, many more. If you want to hear my discussion with him about a lot of topics connected to Mere Christendom, go back to episode 495 of this podcast. But today we're talking about my favorite of all the books that he's written written, and it's this one right here, Future Men, Raising Boys to Fight Giants. And so the thing about this book, it was written back in 2001. This book has been on our book list from the beginning. So the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list, it's in that manhood, boyhood section. And it's this book that talks about what it takes to raise a young man and to put him in a, in a pathway or point him in the direction of true biblical, biblical godly masculinity. And I get, I get people that want me to do boys content a lot because, again, all my content is made for men. And eventually we will expand out into rites of passage stuff and doing stuff for young boys. But in the meantime, it's books like this that kind of give you the scaffolding for how to create an environment around your son, whether you're a father listening to this or a mother, that would lead them to where they can actually fight giants someday. So in this interview, we talk about why he wrote the book. Uh, at the very end, we talk about, hey, if you'd written the book today— you know, what would you add to it? You know, would you take anything away? What would you add to it? And he had a very interesting answer to that. But we talked about, you know, what is biblical masculinity? How can we use that as the model? We also talked about how men are trying to raise boys to become men, but the men aren't even men themselves yet. So they're adults, they can shave, they've got adult responsibilities, but they're not actually men themselves yet. We talk about how pacifism and specifically forced pacifism has caused a lot of issues in this area of helping boys grow up into being men. We talk about the issues that the church has created, how the church certainly drives men away, as I've talked about a million times on this show, but they drive boys away as well, how that creates a lot of issues. But also, hey, if you're going to really take stuff like this seriously, like what Doug talks about in Future Men or what I talk about on this show, you got to get mama on board. And how do you do that? How do you get her to understand what it what it's like to be a boy? Because she never was one. She was never a young boy that went through puberty. She was never a young boy that wanted to get in a fight to protect somebody else. Like, how do you get her on board? But then we talk uh, about, you know, what dads should do whenever they find out that their sons have sinned sexually. You know, maybe they looked at porn or they were fooling around with a girl or something like that. And how does a good godly father deal with those situations? And we weaved in and out of a lot of other different subjects. We didn't have all the time in the world today. So we, we kind of kept it tight to the very, very important things about this book. But I really enjoyed his second appearance here on the show. So I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Doug Wilson, you're back. I guess we didn't get you in enough trouble last time you were on the show. So I figured we'd bring you back on to see if cancellation was a pace. How you that, doing? I'm doing well. We have to keep trying. Okay. We are going to definitely keep trying. You keep writing books uh, as proficiently right. uh, as you uh, have you been doing throughout the throughout the years, and we will be able to make that happen. But today, we're going to go all the way, way back in the way back machine to 2001, where you wrote what I find to be my favorite Doug Wilson book, and it's this book here, Future Men Raising Boys to Fight Giants. So again, this seems crazy. That book's coming up on a quarter century old, but we're going to cover a lot of ground. I'm going to read a lot of quotes from this book. It's very, very quotable. Uh, it's a must-have, must-read for fathers with sons and mothers with sons. It is on our book list, the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. It's in the boyhood slash manhood section. So just briefly before we dig in, why did you write this book? Um, I think I think the genesis, long time ago, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I think the genesis of the book 
uh, had to do with something I say early on where I was doing a teacher training thing at, at Logos. And I said something about the girls in your class in elementary school are going to be moms and uh, w- wives and working in the community. And everybody was just taking it in stride. And then I said, and the little boys in your class are going to be airline pilots and attorneys and judges and doctors. And everybody got this panicked look on their, on their face. Like, huh? you mean these, yeah. these, these boys in 20 years are going to be running the world mm. uh, 30 years. They're going to be, they're going to move into adulthood. And it's, and so it's sort of um, a striking thing that boys are future men. And uh, as I say somewhere, uh, if you don't teach the boys, the men won't know. Right. And, Absolutely. And so basically uh, if you target, th- this is um a thing for evangelism and church ministry and and families and everything. If you target the girls, uh, you're going to get the girls. If you target the boys, you're going to get the boys and the girls. Right. right. If if you if you target the boys, if you and so this is not uh, a dismissal. Writing a book on future men is not a way of backhanding the girls like the girls are unimportant. It's. Uh, recognizing the the schematic diagram of the human race that God set up. So if you uh, if you teach boys to be responsible leaders, to take responsibility, to uh, cultivate a godly masculinity, the women are going to flourish in that. It, it, that's the best the best thing you can do for women is to provide good men. Absolutely. I certainly co-sign that. And that's where we get into the rub from the beginning is, okay, so what is godly masculinity? What is biblical masculinity? A lot of people have tried to write the book on that, but I want to read a quote from from here, and then I want to get you to give us some feedback on that. So here's a quote from the book, Future Men. There are two basic directions a boy can take in departing from biblical masculinity. One is the option of a feminacy, and the other is a macho-like counterfeit masculinity. With the former, he takes as a model a set of virtues which are not supposed to be his virtues. With the latter, he adopts a set of pseudo-virtues, practices which are not virtues at all. And so you're exactly right. We either get told, hey, you don't need to be a man at all. You need to basically put all of your manly tendencies behind you. Or the other side, which is, hey, you know, it's it's dirt roads, it's drinking beer, it's beef jerky, it's killing animals, all things that are awesome, but things that don't make you a man. So for looking to the Bible, this tome of a book, you know, the Bible's a library more than it's a book. How can you encapsulate what biblical masculinity is in terms of how we should model it? Okay, so my one sentence uh, definition of masculinity is uh, masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Okay, Uh, Okay. so when you teach boys to gladly assume the responsibility they have to sacrifice for others, the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility, that goes along with uh, another, uh, that's a, there's a corollary to that, which is that authority flows to those who take that kind of responsibility. So when you take responsibility, you're stepping into a biblical uh, form of leadership. When you, uh, it, to key off of the machismo, f- false masculinity, which wants to make excuses, that wants to say the sun was in my eyes, the grass was mm-hmm. wet, 
a bee distracted me. You know, that kind of excuse making is a good way to get authority to run away from you. Um, so authority will naturally gravitate to authority will naturally flow to, to those who take responsibility. And the illustration I use for that is if I'm walking in a, in a city park or something, and there's a softball game going on and the right fielder drops an easy fly ball and the shortstop starts saying, you know, slapping his glove and saying, all right, guys, we can do better than that. We, you know, we need to tighten up and let's, let's all focus. And then I walk on, I don't know anything else about the scenario, except that I know who's probably the team captain or who will shortly be the team captain because he didn't have anything to do with the drop ball in right field. Uh, but he took responsibility for it. He, hmm. he spoke in a corporate way and he, an authority is going to flow to that guy. But if the shortstop starts ragging on the right fielder and accusing him, you know, um, or worse yet, if the right fielder starts making excuses for why he dropped the ball, then what you're doing is you're having people who in their excuse making have stopped playing the other team and are starting to play one another. Hmm. And th that team as a team is going to disintegrate. So transfer the softball team to your family. Uh, if your family is characterized by blaming, uh, blame shifting, excuse making, that sort of thing, what you're doing is you're setting up a family that's poised to disintegrate. I think you're absolutely uh, correct in that. And I've seen that my ability to take on more has accelerated with each subsequent child that I've had. I've had two sons and it's like, wait a minute, this is more responsibility, but I welcome it. it it's daunting, certainly, but I'm welcoming it. But part of the problem that I think most men have when they're trying to, you know, catechize or just basically lead their boys into manhood is that they aren't men yet themselves. There's a great quote from the book here. This is a great need in the Christian church today. We have a dearth of genuine fathers. We have males who have begotten more males, but we do not have many true fathers. Many men who should now be training their boys to be men are not yet men themselves. And I just got to tell you, Doug, I've, I've been around a lot of men that they're adults. They can shave. They pay taxes like they're gainfully employed. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to checking any of the typical boxes of manhood, machismo, pseudo masculinity or real masculinity, they, they check so very few of these boxes. I don't even know where to go from here. Like, how did we get to this point? Like, how do we turn it around? Take that wherever you want to go. Uh, yeah, I, I was greatly privileged to grow up with a godly father. So I, I knew what it looked like. Um, I, I could just watch. And many of the things I know, I think I learned from watching, not from a book. Um, but, but my dad, who was such a good and godly example, did not have a Christian home. Uh, his father came to the Lord later in life after my father had. So my, my father grew up in, in a Judeo-Christian, God-fearing sort of thing, but not, nothing evangelical, nothing, um, uh, nothing pronounced, not a Bible-centered home at all. Uh, and my, my father, after he became a Christian at the Naval Academy, uh, so de um, decided that I, I need models. I need, th because the Bible talks about the importance of learning by imitation. Um, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, uh, we are um, 
in, in Ephesians, therefore as beloved children be imitators of God. We are, we are instructed to imitate uh, good and godly examples. Of course, the Lord Jesus above all, but also people like the Apostle Paul. My father decided that since he didn't have any real time models, what he was going to what he was going to do is he was going to start reading biographies of mm. uh, of godly Christian men, missionary biography, missionary biographies, that sort of thing. So he could see it's not the same thing as seeing it firsthand, but he was able to get a sense in real time of of what a godly response to a particular particular situation would be. And then he he gave me that um the privilege of being able to see what he had learned in real time in a real person. Hey guys, real quick. If you're anything like me, you are constantly on the lookout for high quality products that are actually made here in America by American hands. The problem is that a lot of American companies have outsourced their labor overseas. So it's an American company, but it's supporting people that don't live here. So I've always wanted to partner with an American company that prioritizes America, American workers, and making all of their materials here in this country. That's why I want to remind you that we are partnered with Origin. Origin is an apparel company based in Maine, and they are focused on getting as much manufacturing back to the United States as they can possibly do. What do they make? They make the best jujitsu geese on the planet, and these are the only jujitsu geese that are made completely in America. They also make jeans. Yes, they're stretchy and awesome. They also make amazing hunting gear, and I know you guys love your Kuyu and your Sitka, but those companies use overseas labor, and they don't do that to help you guys out. They do that to increase their profit margins. Origin also makes boots and work boots, and yes, that does include steel-toe boots. And in the fall of last year, they launched a line of everyday clothing. Their Versa pants are their everyday pants, and they are just especially phenomenal. They also make other outdoor clothes and workout clothes, and they're launching new apparel stuff all the time. If you haven't already, you need to check them out and support a company that supports America and America's workers. Try Origin out today by going to www.originusa.com. That's originusa.com. Use the promo code UNDAUNTED to get 10% off of your order. Again, that's originusa.com. Promo code UNDAUNTED to get 10% off of your order. One, Doug, I think that's a great commercial as well, just for people in general. That's why I have a biography section of the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list, because I, I didn't get a chance to talk to Theodore Roosevelt. My dad didn't know Theodore Roosevelt. No one I know knew Theodore Roosevelt. We don't have any stories except from what we get from his biographies and autobiographies. And right. one thing that we already talked about at this point, Doug, was this idea of pacifism. And pacifism is typically not presented as an option to boys. It's typically forced on them. And it reminded me of a debate I did a couple of years ago with this anti-gun, anti-Second Amendment, pacifist, Christian activist named Shane Claiborne. He literally goes on tour around the country convincing law-abiding American Christians to give up their firearms where they destroy them right there, you know, in front of them, right? And then all of a sudden people are safer because magic and fairies or something like that. And okay. he has this entire ministry based on a, a wrong exegesis of Isaiah 2.4. When Isaiah 2.4 talks about turning your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks, he thinks that means we do that ourselves, that it's not God doing that, but it's that we do it ourselves. But I want to read this quote from this book because this is perhaps my favorite section. So to anyone that doesn't like hearing me read out loud, Doug included, buckle in because I'm going to read a longer section than normal. But I think this is so, so important here. Men who follow Jesus Christ, the dragon slayer, must themselves become lesser dragon slayers. And this is why it is absolutely essential for boys to play with wooden swords and plastic guns. 
Boys have a deep need to have something to defend, something to represent in battle. And to beat the spears into pruning hooks prematurely before the war is over will leave you fighting the dragon with a pruning hook. The Christian faith is in no way pacifistic. The peace that will be ushered in by our great prince will be a peace purchased with blood. As our Lord sacrificed himself in this war, so must his followers learn to do. Boys must learn that they are growing up to fight in a great war, and they must consequently learn as boys to be strong, sacrificial, courageous, and good. Now, this is a guiding principle, in my opinion, Doug, when it comes to how I'm dealing with my three-year-old and my one-year-old. And we'll talk about mama here in a little bit because mama doesn't get the competition as much. She doesn't get the fighting. She doesn't get the wrestling. She doesn't get why I so desperately want my boys to have cauliflower ears like I do. But talk to us a little bit about this this kind of modern Christendom attitude towards any type of violence, even righteous violence. And they would themselves say righteous violence isn't even a category. Ready, go. Yeah. Um, it looks, um, it, it, it looks very spiritual. You can deck it out. Uh, this pacifist approach can be decorated to look like a higher way. Like, mm. like you're a mixture of Jesus and Gandhi. Um, and, and it, it, that's posture for Christians plays well in the secular world. That's the, 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 a Christian who won't fight is someone who gets kudos and accolades from the unbelieving world. Well, there's a, there's a consistent Christian, uh, Christians who are, uh, written off by the world as belligerent or polemical or, uh, too hard-edged, are are dismissed as as believers, as Christians who make their life uncomfortable. And truth be told, if you make other people's lives uncomfortable, uh, they will soon figure out how to make your life uncomfortable. Uh, so, one of my favorite anecdotes from um, Ambrose Bierce's uh, "The Devil's Dictionary." He was not a believer, but um, uh, in his dictionary definition of valor, he he says that uh, he has a little anecdote of a commander yelling at a lieutenant, I commanded you to move forward at the Battle of Chancellorsville, I think. Uh, why have you not moved forward? And the, the lieutenant of the delinquent brigade said, sir, I'm convinced that any further display of valor on the part of my troops will bring them into contact with the enemy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, that's, and that's what people want to avoid. Um, war, battles, even polemical battles, even, you know, um, even verbal battles, political, legal battles are uncomfortable. Um, it's, it's much easier to, to sit by a cozy fire with a good book and, you know, look, leave me alone, leave me alone. But as, and there's a, there's a, form of that that you can respect, like Life in the Shire, um, w- before Bilbo and, and uh, Sam headed off to do their great deeds. But you have to recognize that Life in the Shire is only possible because of rangers surrounding yep. it. Um, basically, a lot of, there, there are a lot of uh, middle-class Americans who are kept secure in their homes by people that they wouldn't have in their homes. Right. Right. Because, oh, he's kind of scary. 
Uh, and the thing that there's a, while we're here, uh, this is something that I've found curious for a, a long time. Oftentimes the center left evangelicals, if you know what I mean, the, the, uh, the people who would, would be in favor of gun control. I'm from Idaho. So out here, gun control means using both hands. Um, <laughs> right. I just saw a map that, that Idaho, like 60% of all homes in Idaho have, have a gun. Amen. You know, is, uh, yeah. So, uh, anyway, um, the, what, what happens is, uh, when we defend, basically when we defend others, uh, that gives the others the opportunity to feel superior because they're, they're, they're living off of borrowed money. Right. Um, Right. Um, one of my favorite anecdotes from history is the early Quakers, who were a pacifist sect, uh, settled in Delaware and Pennsylvania, and in the um, and they in in a marvelous stroke of good luck, uh, the Indians where they settled were also kind of pacifist Indians. Hmm. Uh, so up in Massachusetts and down south, they, they didn't did. It was not so fortunate, but the the Quakers lucked out. But the Quakers were also very industrious merchants and hardworking, and so soon they were plagued by pirates in the up at the Chesapeake Bay, and there was a big controversy among the Quakers: Do we fight the pirates? And eventually they said, "Well, yeah, we're going to fight the pirates." Um, and there was a big controversy among the Quakers because. Uh, it's, it's sort of like planting a garden. Gardens are wonderful. Flower gardens, vegetable gardens. And you're out, out, out in the country and you say, and I don't believe in fences. So I'm not going to have a fence around the garden. Well, the deer are going to eat every, the deer are going to eat everything. Hmm. So you can have a garden without a fence for about 10 minutes. Um, so the, the, basically, I would regard pacifism as a luxury purchased for the pacifist by the people who aren't pacifists. Absolutely. It's certainly the case. And I'm, I can't remember the first person that said it, but the first person I heard say it was Jordan Peterson, where it said, Hey, a man that's incapable of violence is not a virtuous man. He's a worthless man. Because at the end of the day, if you not responding to a situation violently because you're incapable is not the same as being a meeked person who is capable of that violence, but choosing not to act in that way. That's where we get into a whole concept of meekness, which you and I talked about last time. But I think the the church, uh, you know, we'll just use the church, that term broadly, has aided in this uh, a little bit as well, where there's this confusion over whether we should be aggressive or pacifistic or whether the, we should, you know, have biblical doctrine be the backbone of what we do or something else. And there's a quote that you, you say here that kind of leads us into that discussion. Why do boys not come to church, we wonder? The answer is that we chase them out with our insipid and, Im and impotent doctrine. Put simply, our boys cannot learn how to become Christian men, men with doctrinal backbone, without a return to the doctrines of the Reformation, doctrines which are taught and taught plainly in the scriptures. What I would add to that, and what you would certainly echo, would be a full-throated display of the gospel on a regular basis, where we have preachers and not just teachers, but also, and you talk about this in the book, and I won't read the quote, but it's just music. Our men are not considered when it comes to the songs that are chosen, the lyrical content of those songs, the key with which they are sung in. And we did talk about this a little bit last time, 
but the church is not doing any favors when it comes to attracting the boys, much less the men. What do you have to say about that? Absolutely. If you have, if, if you have what I would only characterize as effeminate worship, um, where the sermons are very mild Ted talks with a Bible verse attached. Uh, the music is largely Jesus is my girlfriend music and everything is soft and it's sort of like a powder puff ministry or the preaching and the teaching and the exhortations, everything is conducted with a feather duster. Um, What you're going to do is you're going to, uh, certain men are going to find that distasteful and they're going to leave and other men are going to find that attractive and -hmm. they're going to stay. But the men who stay, the men who find that attractive and who stay are going to be the effeminate men. Basically, effeminate worship is going to attract effeminate men, and those effeminate men are going to wind up in the ministry, and you're going to have some blue-collar worker who, you know, he's really good with a backhoe. He could repair sewing machines with a backhoe, Um, Mm. and and he's going to come to one or two services and then just leave in disgust. That man has nothing whatever to say say to me, right? Right. And it's not not because I think uh, uh, ministers ought to be learned. I think ministers ought to uh, know how to read, and they they should be scholarly. But there's a difference between being intelligent and well-read and being a pencil-necked geek. No, I I think you're absolutely true. You're echoing a lot of the same sentiments I give because, again— People think sometimes that I want the guys to be macho and be into the same things that I'm into. Well, I just so happen to be into beef jerky and hunting animals and lifting weights and fighting and all those things. But you could be into writing sonnets and cooking gourmet meals and, you know, relaxing by the fire, reading a book. And we can be equally as masculine because it's we're just breaking things down into interest. But you're absolutely right. You're seeing these effeminate men attract these other effeminate men. And one of the best emails I've ever gotten in the history of my ministry, Doug, has been whenever I did an entire episode on the effeminacy of modern Christian uh, music and how that's made for women um, and effeminate men. And it was the first time that I'd ever gotten an email from a worship leader at a church. And he said, I've never even thought about the men when choosing the songs we would sing on Sunday morning because mm-hmm. the men weren't singing anyway. So I was just catering to the women. And I was like, do you see your problem yeah. here? And he finally got it. It like snapped in, into place for him that, wait, I have to I have to think about the key. I have to think about the lyrics. I have to make sure the men don't just sit there with their hands in their pockets waiting for this to be over, but that they're actually there and they're participating because the and, church and, does it. Go ahead. A number of years ago, a young woman who lived in our community uh, worked in a local department store, and we have a lot of couples pairing off, people getting, and the couples would come in to register for weddings. And she got to know a bunch of people from our church because of all the couples coming in to register for the weddings. And she was attracted by it. And she came and she came and visited church once. And the thing that bowled her over was the men sing. Awesome. All right, the the men are singing, and there are bass parts, and there are tenor parts, and we we have songs in four part harmony, and everybody participates, and it's masculine. We're, we sing the psalms. We don't believe in exclusive psalmody, but I, we practice what I would call dominant psalmody. A lot of psalms, mm-hmm. and the thing that you can, one of the things that's striking, and we noticed this when we first shifted over to psalm singing, and I have a section in future men on on music and psalm singing is that 
uh, this is God's songbook for the church. Mm. And the, the book of Psalms is full of enemies. All right. Um, when, when you sing Psalms, as Paul tells us to do in Ephesians and Colossians, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And those three Greek words for psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are the Greek words that were headers in the Septuagint for the whole book of Psalms. So I I think he's telling us to sing the book of Psalms. When you do that, you are singing about enemies. You're asking God to deliver you from your enemies. You're asking God to rise up and scatter uh, his enemies, you're you break the break their teeth in their jaw, and <laughs> and you say, "Well, really?" Um, and if you look at the hymnody of the last two centuries, um, there are precious few enemies in the hymns. They're almost entirely absent. It's like we're it's it's like a songbook for people who there there are no war psalms. There are no war songs. Um, and this is outside of the uh, two centuries, but the one exception would be maybe um, uh, A Mighty Fortress by Martin Luther. That's from the Reformation era. Though this world with devils filled, there, there are enemies there. And St. Patrick's Breastplate, which is in some hymnals, but which is an ancient psalm-like hymn. But uh, basically, a lot of it is just, uh, it presupposes that we're already in the Golden Age millennium. And uh, that's not the case. Well, I think it presupposes that everyone, I think when you have effeminate men on staff that are hiring other effeminate men and those effeminate men are picking out the music, uh, we can't be shocked whenever they try to cater to something that is more their style. So they would read through the Psalms and become very uncomfortable by a God that talks about, you know, you know, bending the bow and breaking the the spear and those types of things like that would be something that would be very uncomfortable for them to read. And so they typically cater to mama. And that's one thing that you also talk about in future men is how to get mama on board with all this future men stuff with all this, you know, raising young boys to be able to fight giants someday. So short quote is this an important task for husbands and fathers is teaching mothers about sons. I had, I had to read that sentence a couple of times to where I was like, I, I didn't think you were going to say teaching mothers about sons. I thought you were going to say teaching mothers about masculinity or teaching mothers about fatherhood or something like that. But, you know, a mother has never been a son. Another A mother has never been a little boy. And so she has to be taught what that means and the feelings that they're going through. So what would be your generalized advice for the men out there that take the call to raise future men seriously for how they can get mama on board? One one of the things, this is a very good question. One of the things is the the husband can't assume that she knows. He right. he, he he must assume uh, b- because dad remembers what it's like to be an eight year old boy. Mm-hmm. He remembers what it's like to go through male adolescence. He remembers all, he, he remembers all of that. Um, and his wife has has no uh, no experience with any of that. And it's easy for us to assume, and it's not just men who do this, but uh, it's easy for us to assume that what we know, everybody knows. Um, if if I know how to read, I don't understand someone who's illiterate. If someone's a musician, uh, they don't understand someone who doesn't know how to read music, hmm. uh, that, that sort of thing. And so dad should start with the assumption, if you have boys, that there will be times when mom is just flummoxed, she, she's staring at what's going on in this 
Yeah. Um, my wife had one of those this morning. My, my boys came out. I was listening to metal music while I was working out. And I, and then I just start like mosh moshing and my three-year-old and one-year-old just come over there and start like throwing punches at the air and bumping into each other. She didn't quite get it, but she did think it was funny. Yes. Yes. They, they are oftentimes amused until it gets to, uh, to a certain level of wrestling in the living room. Right. So the dad is, is, uh, roughhousing with the boys on the living room floor and mom is standing in the doorway of the dining room saying someone's going to get hurt someone's going to get hurt and and you and this is going to sound bad but that's part of the point right (laughs) okay Mm. Uh, now you don't want to hurt deliberately but basically if you wrap your sons up in cotton batting or bubble wrap and you remove risk from their lives, what you're doing is wounding them in a way where the wounds won't bleed until they're grown. Mm. Okay. Uh, so you're, you're standing there with your wife on the front porch and your 10 year old goes by the sidewalk, standing on the bicycle seat and, and, <laughs> and, and, and mom's, Oh, you know, tell him to stop that. And, and you could say, you know, I, do think that was not a good idea, but he'll learn to stop that. He know. will certainly learn. All right. Now you don't want uh, situations where um, the boys are uh, being stupid with a capital S. Sure, of right? course. You know, um, because there, there's a, mom and dad are going to have different levels of risk tolerance. Dad's going to have higher level of risk tolerance usually than mom does, and it's essential that the boys are doing things that make mom uncomfortable. It's also essential that dad not just leave her to worry, but that he, um, you know, take her aside, talk with her, explain things to her uh, and say, listen, there is, if, if he's at school, if the boys are at school and he comes in off the playground with blood on him anywhere, it is a glory moment for him. don't don't take away his glory this is the way it is i think it's certainly the way it is and i think it's also true that you have to have a wife that is willing to be on board and willing to let you take the lead at different points when it comes to those things because we're not saying that a kid should never run to mom if they're hurt we're saying that if they're hurt the hurt is is in itself a way of getting them from boyhood to manhood. It's because they're going to have to be resilient. They're going to have to overcome that hurt. They're going to have to learn from it because you typically don't go stick the fork in the socket multiple times. Now that's capital S stupid. That's something that you should intercede for your kid. But when it comes to jumping off of a ramp or, you know, getting in a wrestling match with a stranger, uh, those are things that you should probably encourage unless that stranger is another adult male, but that, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that at another time. There's another, I should, I should tell you a quick story. Yeah. One of my, one of my grandsons who's in college now, but when he was a little boy, like three years old, he was jumping off the couch in the living room and, and they lived downtown, uh, 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 near downtown and, uh, a block away from the hospital. And, he, uh, he said, dad, I, he wanted to do a flip off the couch. And his dad said, no, I think I'm going to draw the line there. No, no flips off the couch. And my grandson said, but the hospital's right there. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a kid that gets it. 
that kid's yeah, going places. I don't think yeah, Doug, yeah. I don't think you got to worry about that kid one bit. He's already got his things mapped out in his brain. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, there's another scenario that I want you to speak to. Uh, that is a big moment for dads and it's not an if thing. It's a win thing. It's when they first find that their kid is sinning sexually. So typically that's going to be with looking at pornography and or masturbating or, you know, fooling around with a girl or something like that. And dad finds out about it. Now I know how I was raised. I know the men that I was around and a lot of that stuff was kind of, if not explicitly, just kind of like, Oh, boys will be boys. It was just kind of encouraged. You know, I had a lot of pictures on my walls, posters of girls in bikinis and, and things like that. Like my parents are just like, Oh, he's just a normal red, red blooded American boy. But for that dad that comes across the sexual sin and depravity of their son, a lot of these men themselves are also struggling with that. So it's kind of a difficult multifaceted question, but what should a biblically uh, strong masculine father do in that moment to not crush the kid and leave them in their depravity, but to kind of show them like, Hey, this, this isn't how we handle this part of our life that we were given as a gift. Yes. Um, it's a very important question. And it is a question that it increases in importance every year that goes by as technology morphs and changes and the temptations to various kinds of perversion are thrust at us from, you know, every, every conceivable direction. And then you couple this with the fact that the kids are oftentimes more tech savvy than, um, than their parents are, or at least more tech savvy on, what the latest uh, uh, social app is, right? The, uh, some social app that's feeding uh, questionable material that the parents have never heard of, uh, you know. Um, so you've got you've got that. There's several things that, um, and let me start with the baseline thing. I would say that when a man is a good and godly father, okay, a good and godly father. Uh, that is one of the best protections sexually for his son. Because I, I remember vividly standing at a bus stop when I was, a, I was just a little kid, uh, probably, oh, well, I was junior, probably junior high. Um, and I remember another uh, kid at the bus stop bragging about all the women his father had been with across the South Pacific mm. in the Second World War. And he was, you know, horsing around joking about all the brothers and sisters that he had that he didn't know about. So he was bragging about his father's immorality. And I remember the sickness that I felt mm. about all those kids growing up without a dad. So one of the, one of the central things that um, that dad needs to teach his sons is the connection the hard, hardwired connection between sexual temptation, se the sexual attractiveness of women, uh, breasts, wombs, all of that, the hard connection of that with fatherhood. Okay, mm. okay. and 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 what you then need to do and say basic, and this has to be sort of established before the temptations start to uh, come in where you're having conversations and the conversations are, are, should not be, Oh, there's going to be a real attractive thing coming along here. And so my message to you is don't it's, it's got to be deeper than that. Mm. It's got to be, this is, this is going to be an assault on your ability 
to be a good and godly father. Okay, yeah. so that's that's one thing. Uh, the the hard connection between uh, resisting pornography and being the kind of dad you want to be the kind of dad son that I am being to you. Right, right, and this this whole thing is connected. Uh, to back upstream a little bit, and this is um, um, probably the precondition for all this instruction, and that is boys are wired to their appetites. Um, when they're hungry, they're hangry. Hmm. When they uh, when they lose in a competition, boy, boys um, are connected to their passions, and that passion can be competition, sports. That passion can be hunger. That passion can be wanting to wanting to sleep that pat you know there are any number of passion you know anger when they're hurt you know that sort of thing and the, these passions are much in evidence when they're two and three and four years old and if dad and mom are diligent to teach their son in the ways of self-control when they're hungry mm. when they're sleepy when they just lost the game when you know you're teaching the principle of self-control if you if you don't teach the principle of self-control and the kid is just a little orangutan running uh running loose that goes on for 13 years and then this kid without any self-control lessons in his bones at all is suddenly finds himself awash in testosterone and the world is full of girls and so here's this kid without any self-control now suddenly confronted with one of the most powerful urges that human beings experience. So you tell me what's going to happen. If, if you say, if you come in, if, if, um, if mom has coddled and flattered and fed him whenever he wants and felt sorry for him whenever he wants and is, has basically um, catered to his passions then all of a sudden porn's a thing and you say, no, no, what are you, what are you doing? Well, what you're doing, you're putting a, a screwing the lid down on a pressure cooker. And if, if you do that, you're going to have beans on the ceiling. Well, I think it's a, it's an unfortunate thing as well because of what I said from the beginning, which is that dads are not even modeling this in their own personal lives. And that's why at the beginning of every year, I do a show called How to Avoid Being a Crappy Man in whatever year it is. And every single year I say no porn, no jerking off because it's like if you're trying to have that discussion with your child uh, about the importance of you know, honoring themselves and honoring everybody else in a sexual fashion or honoring their future spouse in a sexual fashion. It's like, you don't want that to be a do as I say and not as I do type moment. Now we're running short on time. So I want to hit, hit a couple more let me, things. Let me say, yeah, let please me say one thing about, about that. And that is even if the family, even if the wife and the kids don't know about dad's secret sin there, what you're doing is you're giving covenantal permission. You're leaving back doors back doors unlocked of your house in a bad neighborhood. That, yeah. That's what you're doing. So uh, it's, it's not just like uh, dad telling his son not to smoke, even though he smokes and everybody sees. It might be something where nobody knows except God and the devil. <laughs> right? mm. uh, 
And so don't leave those doors unlocked. Yeah. Sorry, no, go ahead. No, that's perfect. And you have you do have a lot of dads that are very, you know, on top of it when it comes to checking the door locks and checking to make sure the windows are, are locked and everything on the way home uh, or, you know, on the way to bed or something like that. They're, they're good with concealed carry and they're good with fighting and they're down to do those things, but they do leave themselves open and they leave a lot of, uh, you know, planes of attack for Satan. So we'll actually just have to make this the last question of the day, but it's just a very generic question, which was this book was written back in 2001. Obviously, a lot of things have changed. A lot of things have changed in the last two or three years, much less the last you know two decades plus. So if you were writing Future Men today, is there something that you would have left out? Is What other things would you have added that you've maybe learned or, learned or seen over the last couple of decades? You know, How would the book be different if you were writing in 2024? I don't think I would leave anything out. Mm-hmm. I think everything that's there would still be there. I probably want to beef up or have a section or a chapter on the whole uh, trans thing. Yeah. Um, uh, and the basically the idea of nature. Um, so boys have a nature, uh, and it's a God-given nature. Uh, I've written since then about our responsibility as Christians to obey our chromosomes, and I, I believe that there there's— if if I had it all to do over again, I would have a, a hefty section on the responsibility of men to respect their masculine nature and to teach boys to grow up into a masculine nature. So is there a chance that we're going to get an updated version? Doug, come on. Come on, baby. Let's do come it. On, yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's it's an hours in the day problem. Okay, but it's certainly a good idea. It is a good idea. Maybe uh, you know I'll do a little bit more needling uh, after the show closes. But I always appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest before we let you go? No, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's a privilege and an honor to speak with you. All right, we'll talk to you next time. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Doug Wilson. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the links I've got for you today, I've got a link to where you can buy your copy of Future Men, Raising Boys to Fight Giants, a link to his previous appearance on this uh, particular podcast, on this show rather, episode 495, and then also a link to his blog. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.